and welcome to the Show Up podcast. This is a place where we explore leadership and what that means for us, where we aim to show up with honesty, vulnerability, and curiosity. Use this space to explore what leadership means in your world and how you can show up to be the leader you want to be, whatever that means for you. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of the Show Up podcast. And this is a very exciting day for me, Derry, Jamie, and Graham, because we have our first ever guest on the podcast. Mm -hmm. A big welcome to Professor Joe Omani. Thank you very much, Derry, and thanks for having me on. Super excited to have you here, Joe, and super excited about the topic we're going to be talking about, which is artificial intelligence. Um, And in the context, as ever, of leaders and particularly those in what we what we call the golden age of leadership roughly between the ages of 25 and 40 people who are stepping into leadership for the first time um i'm just going to introduce joe and and i was just saying to him i every time i think about what he does it uh blows my mind how much he's able to to cover off so here's a a short list and joe let me know if i've missed anything so joe is a professor of consulting at cardiff university where he's been for about 18 years He's managed to write three books, best-selling books, focused around the consulting industry based in his research, uh, his own expertise and experience, and also the work that he does as an advisor to many boutique consulting firms. Having shifted, I think, in recent years from advising larger firms to really focusing down on boutique boutique firms. Joe also runs courses for consultants, particularly independent consultants, um he's a host of the consulting growth podcast he's got at least two newsletters that i'm aware of uh he's the co-founder of and chair of repair cafe wales uh which is a network of repair cafes i think you've got 90 odd now and a thousand volunteers yeah the idea that this is social enterprise that matches up people who need things fixing with people that are able to fix them hmm and part of the reason that we're speaking, well, we know each other well through the consulting world anyway, but the reason that we're speaking is Joe's currently running a project with some of his boutique consulting clients and the Cardiff University Data Science Academy looking at the practical uses of artificial intelligence. Hmm. And we want to have a conversation today about artificial intelligence and particularly how leaders can start thinking about it given the tidal wave of innovation and noise surrounding it at the moment and i think you've i believe you've published 15 mini newsletters on ai for consulting firms and in as linkedin posts trying to keep yes. everybody up to, up to date yes um yeah, yeah. i i should i should uh i'm planning on turning those into a book by the end of the year but we will see there we go so book number 4 in the offing <laughs> as well yes um and i also those regular listeners to show up will know that we talk a lot about conscious leadership and being compassionate and empathetic and having an abundance mindset around how you show up and joe for me is a real uh example of how to show up with an abundance mindset the sheer volume and quality of content that he puts out particularly on linkedin is a he's a must follow for anyone who's interested in in what's going on and uh, i think your, your generosity and what you share is extraordinary Oh, thank you, Derry. I, I I appreciate that from every anyone, but especially from you. Thank you. So it's a real pleasure to have you here and to be talking about AI. And I wanted to just dive into this really with the the kind of question of I've experimented quite a bit 
with artificial intelligence tools in my own business. And some of them are incredibly valuable. And I've used chat GPT or GPT-4 to be more precise. I've used that to save myself days and days of work and create thousands of pounds of value. And I've played with other tools and found them very early stage and not necessarily able to produce output in the way at the levels that I need it to, to actually be useful. And there's a whole spectrum of those tools and there are thousands of these tools emerging and there's so much hype and so much talk about how it's going to revolutionize everything. And I, uh, yeah, just love to hear your thoughts when you've been at the, the coalface of this and the projects that you've been doing and the conversations you've been having of mm. how much of this is hype versus a real paradigm shift for people who are in those leadership positions and stepping into leadership in particular. How how much do they need to think about this as a as a real thing that's going to impact them over the the next years to come? Okay, good 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 starter. Um, okay, so um, I think it's both. I I think it there's a huge amount of hype as there was with you know Bitcoin as there was with process engineering and things. Then there there was obviously a a psych hype. Uh, 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 hype cycle not a psych hype that you know has been studied in quite detail in in terms of academic studies um however just because something has been hyped doesn't mean it's not going to be revolutionary um and and i think i i guess you know i i think i think maybe both of you might 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 be a few years younger than me but i think we we've all lived through many hype cycles but I haven't seen anything with the potential that AI in the in the broadest sense has has got. I mean, the the focus at the moment is very much on LLM um, because it's so accessible to the public and it's so you know it, it smashes the Turing test uh, quite quite easily. Um, could you uh, could you just uh, explain what LLM means for? Oh, uh, sorry. Um, lar- okay, so large language model. So so the um, the ChatGPT. Uh, three, three point five, four. Um, the uh, Llama, um, uh, Facebook's new one. What's it called? Threads. Um, so these are relatively pu- publicly available uh, language models that have been trained on uh, billions of texts in in relatively complicated ways, and can generate what passes for intelligent uh, content generation. So yeah, so I, I think I think the the hype is there, but underlying it, I don't think it's going to be as quick as everyone's thinking because obviously we've seen over the last six months our understanding of AI, especially LLMs, have has transformed, um, and the capabilities, as you say, there's something new out every day. I think the I think it's going to take a long time for people to to catch on. I think it's I think. Uh, as you say, there's a lot of rubbish out there, and um, there's a lot of development still to be done on some good ideas that still need work. But I have no doubt that AI is transforming the world, uh, and I think within ten years, I don't think it's going to be a short-term thing. But I think there's going to be some quite fundamental shifts especially in knowledge work and middle-class work, traditional middle-class work that we haven't seen before. Interesting. So very much real from what you're you're seeing, mm. but actually people maybe have a bit more time 
than they might feel they've got if they spend too much time on Twitter and uh, oh sorry X and uh, <laughs> and LinkedIn with the the dozen posts a day of how you how telling people they're getting left behind. Sounds like maybe people have got more time than they might think. I, I think there's more time to the to to get that fundamental transformation. I mean, I'm, I'm a historian by training, believe it or not, and you know if you if you look at the the waves, um, the technological waves throughout history. Um, you kind of get this initial initial blast of oh god, there's a, a steam engine. Think of the possibilities, or there's you know electricity in the home. Think of the possibilities, or there's nuclear bombs. You know nuclear weapons. Think of. But then there's always decades before it has a, a real saturated effect. And some of that is some of that is the technology around the technology, but also some of it is institutionalization. In other words, society being ready to use this stuff in terms of trust and maturity that's interesting you should say that because um joe um i was involved in a conversation recently which is i think it's a, a to to your point this is real there's some really exciting opportunities here it may not necessarily go as quickly as some of the more excitable parts of both the, the media and the industry have been saying mm. but one th one thing that came out and this came out of a um a source in microsoft who probably is well well informed about their direction of travel at least they said that what people haven't really necessarily got got their heads around is that in the next three to five years while it may not transform everything we do it is going to be generative ai large language model based tools are going to be the way we interact with computers hmm. it's going to become the interface and he said that's going to feel really different in in five years time ten years time your children will have learned how to use digital world through a generative ai interface whereas you didn't yeah that's that's going to be one of the big changes he thought and i was like oh what do, i wonder what that's going to be like yes yes well my, my fun you know we, i don't know what your handwriting is like mine is rubbish and it used to be beautiful um and you know the, the keyboard is in front of me and that's the primary reason and i you know I, as far as i can see even now that isn't a particular reason if you're writing text to use a keyboard anymore. Um, you know, Whisper AI uh, has a 99% success rate in, in transcription, which blows things like Otter out of the water. Um, so, so you firstly got that in terms of the actual interface that's being used, but then you've got to where does that go? Um, and so we're looking at a situation where perhaps we don't have to open up Word documents and Excel files, we we tell the computer what we want, what we're trying to achieve, mm -hmm. and it goes away and does it. Now, whether or not that is ever going to occur, given the levels of errors that are almost built into the system, um, I I don't know. Um, but but certainly the, the potential is there. Could you say a bit more about the levels of errors point? Yeah, I mean, so there's there's two there's two sets of errors. One are one of the input errors, and one one of the process errors. And the input errors are, in effect, what AI has been trained on, what the language models have been trained on, which is um, you know everything from books to Reddit. Now, uh, what what they're specifically about doesn't matter too much. It's the ability for it to predict what the next word is going to be. So when language models generate um, content, they, they predict what is most likely 
going to be the next word or the next pixel or the next note if it's a music generator um, within a certain context. And uh, the quality of what has been these things have been trained on isn't always fantastic. So anyone that's gone through Reddit or Twitter will know that, you know, some some of the language is, you know, it's not just you know, racist, sexist um, and all the rest of it. Sometimes it's factually incorrect. So if you follow the rubbish in, rubbish out principle, you've already got some worries there. And there's checks that, you know, they've done a huge amount of training with, um, with you know, people um, and also automated training to get some of those biases and errors out. But then you've got the issue of hallucinations, which is in effect, potentially some of those errors, but also errors within the code itself, the algorithm itself, in terms of generating what we might expect. And so in effect, you're getting content that might be 95% right, but um, sometimes it's it's way off base. Um, and some of that is to do with the, the pure way in which it's been trained in the process. But what what most companies have done with language models is add layers on top to control its speech. So if you want it not to be sexist, and a lot of the input is sexist, then you put a layer on top to manage that. If you don't want it to swear, then you put a layer on top to manage that. So all of these types of layers influence what would be the, in inverted commas, true speech of an LLM. And, and those create errors as well. So there's almost the more you try and constrain it, the more bias you're introducing into a system that's already biased. Yeah, interesting. I I see from my own experience as well, I see there's a real art to ask to they call it prompt engineering right they're, they're asking it the right thing in the yeah. right way yeah. and and it's it's almost akin to writing code from that point of view that you like if i ask one of my team to do something they tend to know what i mean because they're experienced they're working with me and they've got the context and they interpret it whereas if you just go in cold and ask gpt4 to do something mm. it i other than the the most recent release they've got where you can actually store some preferences and contextual information. But if you don't have that in place, it has no idea what context you're asking the question in. It can go yeah. off in completely the, the not a direction that you were aiming for. Yeah. So there's a whole nother level of error there. Now, one of the things hearing you both speak about this is if you move to a world where your interaction with a computer is primarily verbal and you're interacting, asking an LLM model of some kind to do some stuff for you, whatever that may be. Is there a positive thing here which is going to drive people to communicate what they want with a much greater level of precision and clarity in terms of the way that they think and the way that they speak so that they can get the right results out that might then have a knock-on benefit for people that are leading teams of individuals and actually speaking to humans with a with a new level of precision in the way they ask for things i mean from, from my perspective the sad thing is that you're right um and i don't mean sad in terms of the output but it's sad that it's going to be down to computers to push this rather than humans it's, it's something i insist on with my students is is clarity and precision of thought because again if you rubbish in rubbish out model um, if you can't ask what you want or you can't specify exactly what you mean, then you've got that that interference already, e even before the message has been transmitted. 
And so by the time the person's trans, you know, received the message, they've got all of their fuzzy logic, which might produce something even worse. So I, I think you're right. I think um, I, I would hope that people were in the habit of uh, writing more precisely now, simply because of the amount that we do via text. Um, it would be interesting if we can measure that in some way over the next 10 years to see if if prompt engineering does require us to be more specific, but I guess it's specific in terms of AI rather than specific in terms of humans. So maybe I don't see that research where people use their thumbs to press doorbells now instead of their fingers, which they always used to do. And it's because they're scrolling. So maybe we'll start to speak to each other as if we're speaking to language models. Yeah, I was just wondering whether that that informed kind of evolution might mean that we start speaking in text speak, um, <laughs> just depending on, and that, that would be terrible because if I ended up speaking like my teenage kids, um, I don't think anybody would understand me. They don't understand me now. And I think it's just the rest of the population that um, I would st start to sort, of <laughs> to sort of disappear away from in terms of ability to articulate. Um, just, just in terms of that evolutionary stuff then, you, you mentioned at the start you don't think it's going to potentially take us as, as not going to necessarily evolve as quickly or be adopted as quickly as um maybe many people are, are thinking what's what are your predictions in terms of the, the sort of almost like the milestones that we should be perhaps watching out for in terms of how this adoption is sure. starting to unfold i mean the the really interesting thing about ai as opposed to any other form of product development is that you can't predict when things will happen you can you can train it so they, they had no idea when AI would would be able to have a conversation. And it went from it went from 20 percent, which whenever whenever someone released an AI uh, chatbot, in effect, I would always test it because I wanted to see if it could answer my student essays. And for five years, it produced essays that ranged between zero percent and 20 percent. And then eight months ago, it produced a passable essay. And then six months ago, it produced a distinction level essay. And now it can produce an essay in any language instantaneously uh, of any length, and then mark that essay better, better than I can. Um, and so it's and, and but so there's two things there. One thing is wow, you know, that's that's exponential change because these models are are learning at a at an exponential rate. But the other thing is that no one had any idea when that would occur. And it's the same with the ability of AI to code, the ability of AI to speak Mandarin, and the ability of AI to achieve general intelligence. So intelligence as we would know it. Um, and and so that that's a really interesting. And and what, what has happened is that it is continuously faster than anyone predicts, even the people that are actually building this stuff. Um, and that's because of these massive feed feedback loops. As in the yeah. the the, uh, the pace at which we hit those milestones is faster than yes. we're predicting. Yes. Yep. And, and, and we may be able to reasonably predict that that pace will accelerate yep. on, on some kind of exponential-esque. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, there's, there's there's two fundamental things here. One are the natural limitations of this, and we don't know what those are yet. We we don't know whether the I, I know hallucinations can be 
constrained significantly. But we don't know whether it's possible to remove hallucinations. Um, we, we don't know if the risk of a specific hallucination in a specific um, application is, number one, going to be catastrophic. But the other side of it, and this is why I talk about institutions, is the liability of it. So if you're creating an AI for, I don't know, medical research or psychological support or whatever, um, and it hallucinates, well, one thing is the damage that it does. But the other thing that perhaps is more important to companies is the liability for that and where that rests. And so I think it's things like that that are going to constrain the adoption rather than isn't it amazing technology, because I think already it's amazing technology. But I think there's a lot of companies out there that are very hesitant on all types of grounds, security, hallucinations, risk, liability, and lots of other reasons. I suppose, well, it's fascinating you should bring that up. Thank you um, for kind of opening my mind to other areas around the sort of the constraints side of things. Um, in that same conversation where I heard about something that Microsoft had as a view of the future, I heard that there were two things. One, there's a natural constraint right now, which is hardware, which is yeah. some of the some of the processing power for some of the queries is are 10 times the complexity and the drain on the, the hardware than anything that had previously um taken place and if you then multiply that up by obviously the hundreds of millions of queries that people are starting to run on this sort of stuff suddenly we hit a natural buffer until at least the machinery can get more efficient or we put more machinery out and then you've got the question about energy consumption and all the rest of it and the footprint of this stuff mm. so that's one thing which I'm, I'm going to be fascinated to see how that mm. starts to become considered when people go it's really exciting but i'm going to have to churn up a desert to yeah. put in a data center now to, to handle this stuff yeah and the, the other one was the one that you just mentioned around liability um this same group of people who were together were talking about some of the big corporates they were talking to which may or may not be similar but um i certainly think from a an individual perspective probably represent a similar kind of emotional response there's a fear factor involved here which is as a corporate they're worried about liability they're worried about are they ahead or behind the game they're also not sure about whether what they are thinking of using it for competitively or not is ethically sound they just don't know yet. Mm. And it's moving at such a pace that no one's really kind of been able to catch up and yeah. process that thinking in a way that allows, in this case, two people were pulled off stage almost minutes before they were going to go onto a panel to talk about something with an expert in AI because their legal and PR people said, you just can't mention this stuff yet. Yes. Yeah. It's, it, it, I mean, and it happens at every level. It happens at the individual level, the group level, the organizational level, and, and the societal level as as well. And I don't think anyone is ready for some of these applications. And least of all society, where you know politicians and laws tend to lag ten years behind the risk. Um, and you know, you mentioned you know the environmental impact, um, and you can also talk about the impact on jobs. Um, and, and the risk with client data. Um, and, and this is, you know, we forget, you know, we're not talking about, you know, uh, foreign agents as, you know, the, some, some parties like to call them, call them and the ability of this stuff to hack. Um, it's, it's remarkable and it's getting better now. Sh therefore, should, should we knock it on the head? Uh, can, can we legislate for it or do we rely on, on the responsibility and the social conscience of business? I mean, the, the latter doesn't have a great track record. 
<laughs> no, and the former, as you rightly say, runs on ten-year cycles that can't cope with the pace of innovation. And mm. you know, once the genie's out of the bottle, it's very hard to get it back in. Yep. What, one of the things that's occurring to me is um, I wonder whether there is a very different balance of opportunity and threat here, depending if you're if you're a leader in a large corporate organization versus if you're a leader in a smaller, nimble, well, I, I hesitate to use startup scale, but I just mean small businesses owner operated where they have more freedom to, to move. Because I, I think there's multiple things that might make it easier to adapt to these things if you're in a small organization. One is the the hardware point is less relevant because at the scale you need to operate, you can tap into effectively one of the cloud-based systems. You don't need to build your own infrastructure for your whole business to operate on it. Two is the cultural appetite for innovation and change and the ease with which you can introduce new processes and new ways of doing things and new ways of uh, approaching things in a smaller organization that is very, very difficult in a large organization. And three is the appetite for risk, which mm. many small organizations are terrified of uh, the liability that they face, but many are prepared to take risks that, you know, they're not, they don't have legal yeah. teams and PR teams and they don't have a particular reputation to protect, et cetera. So is there a different world here for like someone within one of the boutique consulting firms that you work with, Joe, versus someone in a larger corporate that Jamie is more likely to to work with, for example? Yes and no, I think. And then the the yes is I agree completely with your points around around uh risk and speed of decision making and you know, you know, the reputational damage doesn't matter so much when you're when you're tiny and no one's heard of you as opposed to your you know ey and you've plowed in you know a billion to, to this um so i i think i think that so all of the all of the participants in this ai project that i'm running they're all boutiques i got five of them and every one i approached said yeah sure you know we'll come on board we'll give our inputs and stuff whereas if i had gone to you know, Deloitte or KPMG, even the partners I know in those places, it, it would have taken six months to get permission if, yeah. if I'd got it. But on on the other hand, there are things that um, PwC can do that a small firm can't. It, PwC can train its own LLM because it has enough data to do so, mm. whereas most boutiques won't. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't fine-tune it or index some of your documents so that it, it, it uses them. But you're not. I mean, what Bloomberg has done with its with its data and producing its own, own model, and then you know, in effect, charging for access to that is going to be a massive earner um, because it yeah. gives better insights. And so you're almost talking different ballparks. And what I'm seeing in boutiques is very much sort of juniors being saving a bit of time double checking their quality in terms of operational tools. Whereas in the larger firms, I'm seeing whole product suites and whole service departments focused on AI, especially as a service for customers. Um, yeah. So it's either building specific stuff for them, or it's a service that's enabled um, through AI. And I don't think boutiques have really caught up there because there's so much investment that's needed. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. What do you? What do you? I've just had a, going back to your the bit of research that you're involved with. 
um, right now? What are what are the big ambitions? What are you hoping to learn from that piece of work? <laughs> so one of the things I've learned is that no matter what idea you have, uh, it, there'll be an app for that before you've even got out of bed. So so I because I'm quite well established in the consulting industry, I every week I get a a um, AI entrepreneur come to me and say, I've got this brilliant tool for um, consultants based on AI and it's going to do this and it can do that. And nine times out of 10, I'll point to something that already does it. Or you can see that within a matter of weeks, the big players will already incorporate it free of charge. So the great example is coding. Um, I had several consultancies, uh, sorry, sort of entrepreneur types come to me and say, hey, I've developed this great new thing for consultancy, um, for, for coding. I just said, you know, just, just wait a month and it will be there free of charge. And it is. Um, and so... I, I would say eight out of 10 business models, new business models that individuals are creating are, are being usurped. So that's the first thing it taught me is just think a little bit logically. If your business that you've created, your SaaS offering or whatever, is in effect a wrapper around ChatGPT or Llama or whatever, then GPT will offer it free of charge at some point because it costs them virtually nothing to do so and it will be better than what you can do and more trustworthy. So that's that's the first thing. Um, in terms of this specific project, I started off thinking, well, um, let's design, in effect, a chatbot that learns from local data. So you've got an organization, it's got a whole load of PDFs, let's get it to fine tune in effect using those PDFs. Now that's already been done at least 20 times from, from what I can see. So the next evolution is to say, well, the, the risk, boutiques and large organizations are terrified about risk um, and the leakage of especially client data. So the idea shifted slightly to be, well, how can we build a locally hosted LLM um, so that it's hosted on a laptop or a server in the organization? And so in effect, you can ban the use of GPT by your consultants, because my research shows that 62 thirds of consultants are using uh, AI to support them. And two thirds of those aren't telling their company about it, either because the company has banned it or because they wouldn't be happy with the way the consultant has used it. So this provides a safe way of doing that. Now, I'm, I, you know, this is an experiment really, and it's getting some of these innovative boutiques engaged with AI and the possibilities of it. And I think within the next two months, we'll have something sat on a server with one of these companies that people can interrogate and it will index their own documents and provide answers. Um, it's also trained in my voice, which is kind of weird. So it, it gives answers in a consultancy style. So I've fed my books, my blogs, my podcasts, and any video recordings I've done into this machine so that you've got three pots of knowledge. You've got the general AI pre-trained stuff that it's already been, been trained on. Um, you've got Joe Omani, so that when it gives you an answer, it gives you an answer in a consulting style. It's got good general, good practice consulting knowledge. And then the third pot is the company data itself, um, anything from proposals and reports all the way through to HR policies. So that ideally when a company uses it, um, 
it's saving the seniors time so they're not having to answer the same question 100 times from juniors but also potentially it's adding a little bit of value different ways of doing things looking at best practice so that's the idea behind it um i've i've no doubt that it will be usurped by something bigger and better from one of the other companies but for the time being we're all learning a lot and it's good fun okay it sounds like the yeah it sounds amazing um sounds like the firms that you've uh i was interested that you said every firm you approached was was keen to be involved it sounds like you're seeing a real sort of attitude of embracing and innovating and experimenting with this stuff amongst your clients or were those hand-picked firms that you approached yeah i mean they, they were how I, I wanted i wanted firms of a certain size because i wanted them to have certain amounts of information also you know very small firms just don't have time to experiment with this type of stuff i, I, I often yeah. find um so they were all firms and they were all kind of facing the same challenge of you know once you get to 50 60 people um you know, your your seniors are meant to be acting as partners and developing relationships and feeding the beast that they've created, but they, they haven't got time for it because there's all these new juniors who have come on board who, you know, don't don't know how to do the work. So they're kind of trapped in the middle. So we're really speaking to that client challenge of our seniors don't have enough time and that challenge of security. How do we ensure that there's no client data going outside the firm? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. And what are the, are these firms like, are they also experimenting with other bits of AI and AI tools or have they generally kind of got a bit fearful about the risks associated with them? Um, there's a real mix. I mean, with, with all of my, with all of the firms I advise, there, there's a few AI tools that I suggest they, they use and use in very specific ways. Number one, to improve efficiency and, you know, help, help you know, the same way that you said you were using chat GPT-4. Um, and there's a few apps out there that are really, you know, you're using Autopilot here, I noticed. Um, I yeah. would highly, highly recommend you check out Firefly. So I've literally just made the switch. Um, and, and there's a few things like that that will just save, you know, time and money. Um, and, and so... All the clients that work with me, I recommend they use things. What one one example is I I ask them where it's uh, possible to record any meetings they have and to transcribe them because all of this data, all of this verbal data, is unused fodder, unused value that can go feed into AI and and people aren't capturing it and they and they should be. Um, and, and I can see why that provoke some concern around risk and confidentiality mm. etc because if if consulting teams or, or teams in any organization really are having conversations on zoom or teams or what have you and they're being transcribed and saved down immediately you want to put walls around that to make sure yeah. it doesn't get out into any any kind of public system yeah um and and then there's you know there's the llm stuff and then there's all the other types of artificial intelligence so you know, expert systems, machine learning, deep learning, computer vision. And those are more things that could potentially be used for client value um, as well as sort of internal stuff. So it very much depends on the problem that's at hand. I mean, I've got about, I mean, I, I, I reviewed a lot of AI and I'm sure a lot of it is improved, but I found that 80% of it just wasn't fit for purpose. But that 20% that does work, they're the ones I, I've kind of, I think I listed in a blog post somewhere and and they're ones that are really useful. And it depends on the problem that you've got. Um, 
and obviously the more client-facing stuff, the stuff that isn't about productivity, it's really looking at ways of de delivering better value to clients or perhaps even new service lines can be a little bit more complicated. Yeah. It sounds to me like there's a there's a bit of a hierarchy if you're if you're wanting to dip your toe into this water and you know you're you're leading a team of some kind in any kind of organization really that the starting point is to look at the tools that help you with efficiency and productivity and that that's the kind of foundation and a good way of getting to grips with what some of these things can do i uh, i i i use gpt4 quite a lot these days and uh my my wife now often says like oh can you ask your ai buddy about <laughs> something and even yeah. uh, like we she wanted to put together a, a a themed treasure hunt for the kids oh one afternoon and she was like well I'll, i was like, i'll just ask gpt4 like give me some clues for a treasure hunt on i think it was an octonauts theme wow yeah, that like efficiency around the home you know so, That's so cool <laughs> I, I did, you claim, like, did you did you claim credit for it though That's no i was very i was very open uh <laughs> Yeah, I will. I'll always, I'll always admit that to my wife so, at least. Um, so that firstly, that's brilliant. But but secondly, you know, specific tools. I I, I realise it would probably be useful for me to just. Uh, I mean, a few to 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 list. Um, plus stocks, um, mock up, uh, uh, nano nets is very interesting. Uh, table convert allows you to use tables for GPT four. Uh, Fireflies that I already yeah. mentioned. I've I've just created a Joe Omani bot using Hansei H A N S E I, so there's a whole there's a whole host of specific apps. Yeah. Then there's you know as you said a hierarchy where you might want to go and specifically code out a project using AI. Yeah, I was I, I think I was talking more about the kind of like do those bots the ones you just mentioned the apps you just mentioned do they kind of broadly fall into that efficiency and productivity yeah. of like we. You can just get stuff done better. Yep. I think there's then then a level which is more around uh, creativity and innovation, and and I guess I guess being able to do things that you can't currently do. So maybe that's something like uh, using AI to write code and create new things for you. So I, I I can't code, for example. I haven't yet used AI to actually write code and try and build something using that, but I'm aware of examples mm. of people doing that. That for me is a level above like, using GPT-4 to structure a whole bunch of text that I've dumped into it or uh, to even to generate new ideas to stimulate thinking around blog posts, for example. No. So there's that there's that efficiency and productivity baseline and that, that useful set of tools that I think is very useful because you've filtered that based on the 80% that don't work down to here's a bunch that are actually useful and can do what they say to a level that is of acceptable output quality. Yes. And then you've got the kind of creativity, innovation stuff. And then you've got the, like, really, from a consulting perspective, the client-facing services that you might provide. And I guess in in larger organizations, the, the, the equivalent of that third level is, I guess, something like using these tools to completely remodel the way that an, an, uh, a team works or a function of the business works which might have very material knock-on implications for the number of people that you need and the roles in that and yep. the skills that they need um so i i think if you because 
you know, if we think about these people sitting there in a kind of new into leadership type position or relatively early in their leadership journey, and they're thinking, how the hell do I even start to tap into all of this and the potential of it all? And I would say, like, just, yeah, get get a transcripting tool that can summarize next steps from your team meeting yeah. and test it out to sending around automated next steps and see yeah. if that helps people get done what they need to do. Is that that level I I'd recommend that people start at? Yep. Yep. And just, you know, when you're thinking, you know, as you said with the treasure hunt, you know, when when you're thinking, oh, you know, I've got to create a new workshop or I don't need some ideas for I would say always write your ideas down first, but then go to chat GPT four and test it and you know, see see what it comes up with. And very often it will even if you're an expert in an area, <laughs> speaking personally, it will it will add um it will give you some ideas you hadn't thought of. Before. Yeah. Um, definitely. How, how um do you see so the like one of the implications of all of this stuff is that people will start to think differently. You know, we said at the start about the precision of instructions that are issued, for example. They'll start to think differently, they'll start to require different skills. Do you see that kind of cascading down into schools and universities and the, mm. the way that people develop and are there knock-on impacts for even kind of cognitive development and the way that people think as as these things roll yeah. out i mean it's, it's it's good and bad again isn't it i mean this this could quite easily and is being used now as a shortcut for thinking yeah um and that's why i said you know always write your ideas down first because you the worst thing we can do as humans is to outsource that thing that makes us most valuable to a computer and so um, especially if that computer does hallucinate and is trained on, you know, material that isn't necessarily great. Um, but yeah, so, certainly. So funny enough, I'm, I'm halfway through a paper writing about digital skills that we should be teaching in universities for future consultants. And some of that is around digital awareness and digital skills and just, you know, not necessarily being the person who knows how to use package X but being able to, you know, distinguish what works and what doesn't to be able to structure a problem and look at opportunities for using different types of IT to fix that. Don't get me wrong, the traditional skills of, you know, PowerPoint, Excel, communication, business development are probably still going to be crucial for the next 20, 30 years. Um, but there is so much efficient, so many efficiency gains to be you and you don't need to be a coder to do this. And this is a crucial point. So I'm trying to get my students to use it on their MBAs. Um, whereas some universities are actually banning it. You know, they're, they're saying, oh, we can detect the use of AI, which of course they can't. Um, so yeah, ma massive implications on uh, with what should be taught, how it should be taught. And I, I, think, I think rather than a shift in the way of thinking, I think the danger is that people use it for their creativity. Um, and this is this is a challenge to the whole industry because you've got all these analysts in, in the traditional pyramid model of partnerships where it's an apprenticeship model. When you don't need all, the, all of these pretend, um, apprenticeships, where's that talent going to be coming from? Or when these apprenticeships aren't learning the fundamental skills of, um, I don't know, business development and crafting a narrative, because a computer's doing it for them. 
Um, where are you getting that next cohort of partners from? And I'm guessing this is something you guys deal with a lot or thinking about. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I, I have a slight fear of a of a bland dystopian future where creativity just dries up and everybody's using these tools to regurgitate the same answers in the same tone of voice and the same like I I really hope we don't end up there and I think there's enough human drive to not end up there but it is it's a fear for me of the the generic consistency of the output from LMs. My my fear is is completely the opposite, actually. So, right. so it's to see, this is a really interesting point. Most people are, are talking about AI in terms of the service it can provide. So in terms of, you know, functionality or saving time or efficiency or producing content or whatever, there's been very little thought given to the other side of the equation, which is the client or the consumer. And I, I think one of the most dangerous things about AI, and it's really building on this um, echo chamber that social media has given us, is really to provide us with a much better understanding of who Derry Hughes is as a buyer, as a client, and as a person, and being able to tailor my message as an AI generator to your needs. So right. it, it in effect, it, it has now through any post you've put out or your Facebook profile or your LinkedIn data, um, it has more information about you than I have. And it has an ability to process that and work out what your trigger buttons are. Yeah. And, and so my worry is that you get this hyper-personalized messaging that is much more persuasive than than anything we've seen before um and again good sides and bad sides to that but that is something that hasn't been spoken about yet yeah so essentially it creates an echo chamber of one with the illusion <laughs> that it's not just you in it yep with the messaging yeah yeah so what I mean, what, what what we already have with social media is this ability to you know put put you know uh a hundred people all across the globe with a very peculiar, strange niche interest. And that could be whether you're being a furry or whether you are interested in, you know, local LLMs for boutique consultancy, put them together, allow them to have a conversation, create a community from all over the world. And you've got a common interest. Then what happens once AI allows us to target that in terms of, whatever, whether it's a political message, whether it's uh, selling a product or whether it's building relationships with them. And that to me becomes worrying at a personal level. And you can see already people are falling in love with these AI bots because they have the ability to understand them better than humans do. And if we're not there yet, we'll be there very soon. Yeah, and I think the, the obvious next step, we've got, what, three major democracies with big elections next year. Mm -hmm. India, the US, the UK. Um, I'm just anticipating how much the fear factor will rise because, you, as you say, you can tailor groups, you can tailor individuals, or so you target them and their echo chambers. That's something that's already been proven to be something that actually some quite radicalized and mm. polarizing politicians have used to their advantage with the help of media. And now it's not necessarily going to need to be the media that's going to need to do it. It could, could be doing it, it could be other channels. 
so that's going to be it's going to be really yep. fascinating um just i'm conscious of time joe um uh, don't want to take up too much time but i'd love to know if you were to have one or two either hints or tips for leaders in that kind of age group once we're just starting to get into that leadership role what are the kinds of characteristics or things that you would recommend that they absolutely need to think about um as this wave of evolutionary stuff starts to sweep across us yeah okay so so i think i think one is experimenting um so i think having the team experiment with this and i don't mean you know with client data um but there's a wonderful website called product hunt and it it allows it's it's the ranking of all the good products out there and there's a subcategory of ai and so you can see you know people's reviews of what works and how they're using it and you know if it's any good and i would encourage the team certainly with operational efficiency stuff to experiment with gpt4 um and occasionally look at the product hunt leaderboard and see what other people are using that they've found useful um I don't think you need to run out and hire data scientists because I think for most consultancies, you know, of the boutique style, um, uh, actually this stuff is fairly intuitive and doesn't need coders to, to make it work. Um, the, the second thing is to think with this. Remember I was talking earlier about sort of digital maturity in terms of consultants understanding what's available. And that's to really think seriously about what data they have and what data their clients have. Um, and I find with my own clients, I ask this data question, they say, oh, you know, we kind of, you know, collect data on, uh, I, I don't know, our, our projects and their life cycles and whatever. But there's a step beyond that, which is to say, well, have we interrogated this properly? Have we analyzed it? Can we Can we find any value? in there um, that could be useful for clients or for ourselves. And so that's the second thing. This goes slightly beyond the AI thing, but certainly in terms of taking your data seriously and really looking for value in it, I think is important. Um, and the, the final thing, yes, I guess is, is, not, is not to leave and suddenly think I've got a great idea that's going to you know uh, make, make me millions because the odds are the big players will be releasing it free of charge in about six months time. Yeah. Pick, pick a different side hustle. Yeah. Yeah. I just think just to build on your first point, I think with a, a kind of practical thought around that is if you're leading a team of any kind in any organization, just figure out where the, where the inefficiencies are, pay attention to where they are. And chances mm. are that there's some kind of tool out there that can help you free up a bunch of time. Yep. And if you if you get in a cycle of doing that, you're gonna you're gonna free up time quite efficiently. Um, Joe, I think that was such a fascinating conversation. I feel like we could carry on for a long. Yes, yes, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but we will be respectful of your time. Um, before we wrap up, where can people best find you on on the internet if they want to subscribe to your content follow you more etc i know um, you've got a bunch of different things where do you direct people I, I put a load of stuff out on linkedin so you can find me on linkedin or i have a website which is joeomani.com which is slightly self-aggrandizing but um uh yes it, that that's where most of my content is free of charge awesome i think so, it would be amazing as well if you'd be uh, willing to do it at some point 
love to have you back on to hear more about how your experiment and your project yeah, yes yes watch this space yeah, that would be superb to learn more. So yes, search, search for Professor Joe Omani on LinkedIn or joeomani.com to link up with Joe and get his content, which as I said at the start, I find incredibly valuable. Joe, I love the conversation today. Thank you so much. Thank you. For Thank you. Very much. guest on Show Up. And Wonderful. we look forward to picking up with you again in a few months' time. Brilliant. Thank you, guys. Take care. See you, Joe. Thanks. Well, gentlemen, uh, hot off the time that you, well, we've shared with Joe Amani and his thoughts on AI. I'm absolutely fascinated to hear what your reactions have been or through that, your reactions were through that conversation with Joe. Yeah, I loved it. I found it really interesting, very thought-provoking threw up a bunch of perspectives that I hadn't really considered before on the whole topic. And yeah, just really found it energizing and interesting and a little bit scary about like, what do I do next personally in my kind of leadership role now with all of this stuff. But yeah, it was great. Jamie, for you? Uh, first of all, as a person, what a what a guy. Um, you know, I often have a, an image in my mind of what a professor of anything will be like, but one of the most accessible, relatable articulate person of all people that I've had the great pleasure of meeting about a topic which actually can be at times quite dense and um and hard to sort of make sense of he was he was across the whole thing uh, I just thought that was wonderful so the ability to have what felt like a um a far-reaching conversation but in a short space of time as as Derry said at the end I think that conversation for us could have carried on and on and on um and just learn more and more from how he's playing around with i mean he's really experiential in what he's starting to test out with this which i think is a real really wonderful um view of what academia on this topic is prepared to do they actually throw themselves really into it yeah absolutely i mean it constantly blows me away with the number of different things that he is able to get to a level of depth and a volume and quality of output on on a on a sustained basis for months and months very impressive yeah it's i mean he's modeling that thing that he was suggesting leaders perhaps need to think about which is their willingness to experiment it's, it's part of what he does yeah 100 um which is, Derry, which is you mentioned you mentioned Derry. you felt a shift in yourself or an expansion in yourself can you be more specific about what some of those you notice have been yeah i think i was I became aware of how difficult it might be to use some of these things in certain organizations um, and how threatening it can be. Um, so the long list of constraints that Jamie articulated at one point um, made me really kind of think, wow, this is for a lot of people sitting there in certain types of organizations, there's must be a real sense that this is going to happen to them from some centrally mandated strategy uh-huh. and whatever definition of strategy you might want to use some cent- centrally mandated AI driven, AI driven strategy. Yeah. Um, and I can, so I can well imagine people sitting there going, well, this is all well and good, but I, I can't, I don't have the permission to use this. 
that are permission to experiment. It was interesting, Joe quoted the stat of two-thirds of junior consultants are using these tools and two-thirds of those are not telling people they're using them because they're not really allowed to. Um, and I'm sure that is equally true in other types of organizations as well. And then the other piece that I hadn't really considered before is the ethical angle, um, particularly the conversation towards the end where we were saying how it, Joe was talking about the ability to hyper-personalize messages to individuals and i can see again certain types of roles and certain types of organizations there being an intense pressure to do that and that individuals will start to run up against their own ethical boundaries more and more as to what they deem an acceptable way of interfacing with customers or with the world or with employees versus what organizations senior leadership might want to achieve whether that is efficiency drives which mean 80 90 percent headcount reductions that you as a leader you may avoid but your team may be radically different and that may impact people through to the way that you interface with customers and consumers in the broader world and these tools can enable uh that let me get the phrasing right these tools can enable behaviors towards others that may contradict your ethics without you even really being aware of what's going on. And I think there's a whole can of worms there that is something we didn't really get into in the conversation, but I was left with this slight concern for a lot of people that it can be really, it could be really challenging. Yeah. And I think that it comes back to one of the topics we've talked about more than once around, I'd actually put it under the banner of diversity. Diversity of perspective about what's right or wrong, righter or wronger in terms of uh, the practice of business. Um, I think that has now got a new factor or variable in the equation, which is the speed with which those services, products, micro uh, marketing and or super micro marketing or nano marketing um can now occur uh, and influence with using behavioral science nudges at a scale that we could never have imagined even you know, just a couple of years ago that's something which is going to create a real tension in a team um that may or may not be evident until you suddenly go well this is the new version of x by the way that means this is the kind of stuff we're going to be using about our consumers or our customers or our whatever it might be. The question is then, does that feel right? Um, and the, the yeah, and different it, perspectives on that. If everyone's living in their own individual echo chamber that's reinforcing their view of the world and their beliefs of the world, then that's going to drive, accelerate this polarization of thought. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's fascinating. It's funny because one of the questions I wrote down was how do you think leaders can leverage time to take a more balanced view on the opportunities and risks AI offers. And I noticed through the conversation that that to me started to then expand to this idea of ripple effect management as well, which I think what you boys are both talking to is that this drop in the ocean or the AI is or nuclear bomb, as some might argue it, it could be. And I think Joe even used the term nuclear bomb at some point in the, in the podcast, but this idea of this big disruptor coming in, how leaders can start to think about not just what it does and what the opportunity is, but what impact that's going to have and balance some of that there. Felt like it was quite present. 
Now, I wanted to pick up on one specific point with you boys and get your thoughts from a kind of practical point of view. Because what I picked up was that there was a real opportunity for leaders to lead something in the adoption of AI into businesses. And Derek, you talked about it and the thoughts that stimulated us as well as you did, Derek. So my question is, in training LLMs, which seem to be the predominant AI tool used in most business these days, it's the first, it's the one that's been socially adopted as, a, as an approach. So in training LLMs, how can leaders ensure they balance out bias? They can't ensure they balance out bias. What do you think they can do then? I think it's an extraordinary problem. It's well, it's well documented that ChatGPT is has a heavily left wing bias in terms of what it's been trained on and the types of things it will it will do and it won't do. Um, one of my concerns is if you train an engine like this on all of your internal documentation and all of your transcripts of you say say a leader sitting there now and they're like right five years time I want to have an internal LLM based on all of our content. So I'm going to start recording every single call that we do and transcribing it so that we can then feed that in along with all of our documents, et cetera, et cetera, in exactly the way Joe described. You're then training that document on the ways that you've been thinking. And that might that might introduce a bunch of bias, but it's also going to be very difficult, I think, for that that the AI that emerges off the back of that to really understand some of the evolution in thinking that has gone on and the way that that uh, processes and propositions <laughs> and solutions have uh, evolved over time. And it's going to be heavily biased towards the certain types of people in that organization who are contributing the most. And those people are then going to have their thoughts reinforced because suddenly the junior teams are going to be trained on the thinking of the most vocal and prolific senior folks. And it's going to be embedded deep into the, the training tools and thought processes. So, I, I mean, again, you're just create, you're creating a bit of an echo chamber based on a very small number of vocal people, I suspect. I think you've actually just almost answered the question indirectly about what can leaders do though? And they can't necessarily solve the problem or the outcome, but they can focus on the intention. Awareness that there's inherently a bias. Awareness that it will ultimately, if we feed the machine, echo what we've already uh, taken into um, uh, that particular paradigm or context, which is our own biases or the historical uh, institutional bias. So if your intention is, how do we now knowing that that is the case and being aware of it how do we do our best to make sure more voices are heard there is um, more effort taken to surface where those biases might be there is more corrective action if certain biases are detrimental or discriminatory through things that we are either conscious or non-conscious of um, if that intention becomes the focus then i think it's probably the best a leader can do because I think, as you said, uh, Derry, to be able to eliminate it, it's just like trying to eliminate bias in real life. Um, you probably never could. But if you can focus on the more positive in intention 
I think that's about where leaders at this stage can really focus something practical um, uh, from my perspective. So does that enhance the value of a cognitively diverse team? Mm -hmm. So if you've got this this backdrop of the training material is based on what everyone has always said in the organization you operate within, if if that training material is fed into a cognitively diverse team who feel enabled and supported to challenge it as appropriate and bring their own voices in, it, 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 it potentially enhances the value of the diverse team and it ups the ante in terms of the skill required to lead that diverse team and bring in different voices with enough authority to challenge what will become, you know, the the Bible of that organization of, well, this is, this is the collective wisdom of the people who have been here before you to then make yeah. it safe for someone to directly challenge that is difficult. I think it's going to be difficult. It's, it, it increases the size of the challenge, but actually as we're talking about an accelerometer here, um, of progress, particularly focused on efficiency, perhaps even beyond that. Um, if you t if you then think of the accelerometer and then the graphic equalizer, if you combine those two images, it really means that you've got to really focus on quite consciously increasing uh, the value you place on hearing the diversity of thought, giving it time and space to be uh, influential on what is feeding the accelerometer. Hmm. What do you think, Ro? My first answer is I'm the one asking the questions around here, but <laughs> um, I I love both your answers because I think you highlight both the real danger and the opportunity with this on the table. And I'm reminded of a one of them, you know, those random websites you get sent to where they say do this and it will give you a test of your ability, your your expansive thinking, or you know your whatever. The thing was, and I did one once that sort of argued, it tested how far humans could think differently from one moment in time to the next. And it basically asked you to list, I think it was 20 words, but you had to make them as unrelated as possible. And it tested your ability to expand beyond the space that you're currently in so you could say the on one case and then you could say cars on the next thing and then you could say mushrooms but the link would be quite close because you're labeling cars and mushrooms not labeling from going from cars to belief which is yeah. you know that kind of thing and when jamie was speaking there that's what came up for me that that there is a real richness and you Derry, sorry there's a richness for teams to be able to critically challenge what they place into that learning model, that AI model and that data set that that picks up from. I also then got a vision of someone like Apple, for example. We know Apple historically lost Steve Jobs at the very last minute, right? And up until then, everyone was like, where's the hope for the future? And look what um, his name's gone from my head right now. But Tim Cook. You know, Tim Cook. Look what Tim Cook's now done. First trillion dollar business, market value, right? So clearly there was something there. But what if AI had been able to capture all of Steve Jobs' philosophy and they could put an AI Steve Jobs at the table for some of those strategic leadership decisions going forwards so they could still access his thinking or a version of it? But 
that ability for teams to draw upon each other and to step back and not just follow what it says probably is going to be really important for leaders to create that space to like you say not eliminate bias because you can't but to actually help bias be considered in the choices and maybe by considering the bias that is inherent in you know the hologram of Steve Jobs that is at the end of the board table as a ghostly figure hanging yeah. over to the shoulder, <clears throat> eliminate or the whatever equivalent it is by recognizing the bias in that. Maybe it helps people recognize the bias in their own thinking yeah. and their teammates' thinking, and therefore drive a level of self awareness around that stuff. Yeah. Behaviorally, I think that offers a risk because we know that organizations can be successful if they follow the leadership of one person which means they're following the bias of that person to a greater extent than challenging it by proxy. So I would argue there's a, there's a, there's a scale, there's a set of scales to sit and, and, and think through with this, but I think it offers great opportunity. I suppose the final question I want to leave on for you both to, today is for the listeners. What are you now curious about to explore in terms of the use of AI and the context of AI with you and your work? One thing that comes to mind is actually that topic around the diversity. Um, either by observation or maybe even with some active light research, start to get a sense from a lot of the leaders I talk to, how are they going to try and do this? What comes up for them? Or are they just not aware of the fact that that might be necessary or are they stuck? Because I think it's a really, really pivotal um, lever or an important um, factor in how this journey that we're now on, and it's a fast journey and it's accelerating how this journey will proceed. Um, that role that the leader plays in putting safeguards in place. I think for me, there's two things. One is an awareness that I've only scratched the surface of the efficiency and productivity potential of, you know, I'm in that camp of, I run a small business. I can innovate processes extremely quickly. I can make decisions very quickly. I can test stuff out and there is so much more I can do. And I'm particularly thinking about ways that I can train and upskill and capture our internal IP in a way that is, we just don't do at the moment in, in a useful way. So there's a whole, I, I feel like I'm right in the foothills of something that I think is going to be really important for us to have an edge going forwards. And then the other side is with the nature of the business that I run training and helping develop skills is an awareness that the skills that are valuable are going to shift dramatically in in the if not in the next 10 years in the next 20 years and preparing people and helping people go on that journey is both an opportunity and a threat um and it may well be that a lot of what we do from a training perspective can be replaced by by ai but also there will be a whole bunch of organizations out there that don't really know where to start with their skill evolution journeys and so there's an opportunity there so yeah bunch of things 
yeah, there's a note I took that there's a real chance for workshops to be led around raising the quality of the questions that you ask AI. Yeah. And I could see leaders rather than focusing on what the, what's the content of this meeting today, it's we need to ask AI some quality questions to help us farm that, farm out what we want to get or generate a creative solution that we've not considered. Yeah. That's half an hour for and, the team sitting around developing the questions. And then what do you then do to try and address the bias that's coming yeah. out in that? Yeah. yeah. And avoid this, what Joe termed a, a lack of thinking. Well, we'll just chuck, we'll ask some good questions of AI and it'll chuck out some answers and we'll just run with it because it'll be good enough. And that's. You said they were good questions in the first place. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, exciting stuff. Well, it's definitely here to stay by the sounds of things. And I think it's going to be exciting to see where this goes for the future. Until the next one, hey, chaps. Thanks, guys. Speak soon. any of the subjects we cover in this podcast spark inspiration curiosity or concern within you do drop us a line details are in the comments below and we'll be happily there to listen and see how we can offer the best support for you